The scripture reading today is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told his parable to some who trusted in in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. It's, uh, it's really great to be uh, back at Liberty this fall. Um, always glad for Jeff to get a little time away and, uh, and come see you guys and uh, see how things are going here. Uh, Jeff's a good friend. He's been a real encourager f- uh, to me personally since we moved to Philadelphia uh, about four years ago to start City Church. And um, we meet pretty regularly for prayer and in just encouraging one another. So it's, I feel like in many ways we're part of one another's ministries. And it's, uh, so it's delightful to be here with you this morning. Uh, let me just open with prayer, if I may. Father, uh, thank you that in our time of worship this morning already, you have been reminding us that the cry of our hearts should be that it's better to have one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. That our delight, our great delight, our chief delight should be in you and not in anything else. And yet we each know that um, that's not exactly true of our lives. And so we pray that now as we think about this story that Jesus told uh, long ago, that we would understand how to find ourselves inside of it, um, preferably as the sinner, the one waking up to the mercy and the grace of God. Will you teach us something today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this fall, you guys have been uh, thinking about the stories of Jesus that he told, the parables. And, um, you know, I think that the titles it says up here, Finding Yourself in His Story. Um, these parables function in a, in a certain kind of way inside of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Eugene Peterson, a pastor and teacher and professor of theology and sort of practical living as a Christian, has uh, said of these particular stories that they serve or they function uh, in much the same way that a spiritual director might function in your life. And you think, well, what is a spiritual director? Some of you may have grown up inside of church traditions that, that, um, that might regularly meet with someone more mature or a little more advanced than you in your spiritual life, and you would meet with them, and their role in your life would be sort of a cross between, say, a pastor and a counselor. You know, we often will, you know, sometimes we'll talk to pastors, or sometimes we'll talk to, uh, we'll talk to a counselor when we feel particularly stuck in certain places in our lives. But a spiritual director was someone in the middle who would come alongside of your life as a Christian and help you see things in yourself that you might not be seeing. You might not feel stuck, but he might show you places that you are in fact stuck. 
And he or she would then help you to begin to see the greatness of God's love for you in a way that moves you beyond those spaces into a new trajectory of growth. The stories of Jesus do that for us. They do spiritual direction in our lives. They lead us in sort of anchoring or really locating ourselves inside of the story that Jesus is telling. That's their purpose. So that we will, on the one hand, wake up more and more to the brokenness of our lives. We'll be more aware of the brokenness in our lives. But at the very same time, we'll be more and more aware of the grace of God that has come into the world, that is coming to us in Jesus Christ. And this story that Jesus told um, particularly begins to burrow down into what kind of people. Look at what Luke says. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is an identity story. And we're meant, as we read this story, to begin to think very practical, very intimate, very real questions about ourselves, about how we find identity, about how we, how we uh, defend ourselves before, before the world, before friends, before your parents, before peers, before colleagues, maybe even before God himself. How do you understand your identity? Who are you? And what, what Luke here, as he reports this story out, what he's telling us about these particular people gathered is that they were finding their identity in their resumes, in their accomplishments, in the things that they brought to God. And not only that, they were finding their identity as they compared themselves to people who didn't have things that they themselves had. And so Jesus tells this story to begin to get under their skin just a little bit, to sort of turn their world upside down so that they might change. So identity inside of our broken world is a very fragile thing, isn't it? You know that from your own lives. As you think about the way you piece together your life in this world, you know that you're constantly under the burden, under the pressure of what? Of making yourself, of defending yourself, of propping up your identity. And this story, if you let it, can get under your skin in such a way that you are the person leaving justified. That you're the person leaving with the great welcome of God. Let's think about it. So, the story here. Two men praying in the temple. Two men praying in the temple. Now, first I want you to think about the temple. What happens there? And why is it that they're praying there? I think it's incredibly important because in the ancient world, and certainly inside of Israel, the temple was that place where God's world meets our world. And it meets it in such a way that it casts a vision. It expands our imagination of what our world ought to be like, about the way our lives ought to be like inside of God's world as we live in relationship with him. But not only that, it meets it in such a way that we remember that, yes, our world isn't as God intended it. When you read back into the earliest chapters of Genesis, the very first things you understand about being a human being is this. Is that God has made you, he's made me, he's made us, he's made human beings everywhere to be like him in the world. And to live and engage in the fullness of life, in every dimension of life, through a loving intimate relationship with him. And as we love God, then we move out into our friendships, into our relationships as husbands and wives, perhaps, as, uh, as, as just general friends, as neighbors, as colleagues in the workplace. 
You move into the area of your employment. You build society. You build politics. You build culture through a relationship with God rather than without him. But that's not how life has turned out. Instead, you and I have sought identity. We have sought to delight not in the presence of God, not in the nearness of God, not in the wisdom of God, not in his love for us, but in lesser loves, by looking out into the created world itself and delighting in other things. Identity is fragile. The temple worship was meant to show Israel and instruct Israel in a very different way of being a human being, of living life as someone caught up into a relationship with God, living life as one who confesses their sin and depends upon the greatness and the mercy of God, his love, his sacrifice, as the very foundation and basis of their lives itself. So these men have come into this space of worship, into the temple itself, And the crowd that's listening to Jesus, where are they? They're before Jesus himself. And who is Jesus? He is God in person in our world. In him, in a human being, in someone you could touch, in someone you could listen to, in someone you could be near and watch and overhear their conversations. Here, in him, heaven and earth meeting. They're right there in front of Jesus. And Jesus tells this story that they might understand themselves and that they might understand him. The Pharisee. We're told that he stands alone watching others, right? The whole tenor of his prayer is a litany of people that he's not like. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the adulterer. And, by the way, I'm not like him. His posture is a posture of pride. We learn from the Pharisee, from his prayer, from his references to his accomplishments, from his references to his resume, to the things that he brings to God, not to the things that he needs from God, but the things that he brings to God. We learn that the way he crafts his identity, the way he understands himself as a person, is that he is successful in all of the right ways. And he brings that success to God as the basis of his acceptance. And part of that acceptance includes the comparison to other people who are less than him. Or people that don't have exactly what he's brought to God. So he's constantly looking down his nose at other people. So instead of being a person who welcomes others, who loves others, who praises others, he's a person who draws lines in the sand and says, I'm over here and you're over there. I'm different from you. And that's how he's constantly propping himself up, propping up his identity. The second person here in the story is the tax collector. He also is alone in the story, isn't he? But we're told that he's alone not because of his superiority, not because of what he brings to the table, but really because of his lack. He's alone because he recognizes that there's a very real sense in which he's not welcome in this place, certainly not by the Pharisee. And not only that, he's keenly aware of his deficiency even before God. So he cries out, beating his breast, pleading for mercy, asking for mercy. His posture is one of tremendous humility, and he begins to confess his sinfulness, and he looks simultaneously to God for his goodness and for his greatness, to his mercy, as the only way in which he 
could be in that place where heaven and earth meet. Inside of that vision of a world transformed by God's mercy and by his grace. Now, we read this story and it's apparent. You know, you read the story and you read about the Pharisee. You think, you know, what a jerk. Who wants to be like that guy? But think about it in Jesus' moment. Inside of his culture, the Pharisees were people that every person would have believed had an insider's relationship with God. See, these are the religious leaders. These are people that read their Bible. These are people that studied the scripture. These are people that knew the things that God promised, frankly. And with a great deal of sincerity, I believe, they want the world to change. They want life to be different. They want God to show up. But over time, and very subtly, the Pharisees are depending on their own accomplishments for their peace with God, not God's mercy. But these are the people that everyone would have believed had the insider's route to God. And what about the tax collector? The tax collector was really, you know, we, we might have our own little jokes about the IRS or about tax season, and we don't like it, and we don't like, you know, someone taking something we perceive to be ours, or more than their share of what we perceive to be our share. But inside of the Roman world, you need to think about who the tax collectors were. These were middlemen. They were persons that brokered the tax burden that Rome levied against their conquered territories. So just right off with that little, with that little notation, with that little reference, you know that everyone in Israel would what? They would hate the tax collector. Because the tax collector is at minimum a constant steady reminder that they're a defeated and enslaved people. But not only that, these were persons in the middle and their relationship to to Rome was just a little too tight. It was a little too close for comfort. Who are their loyalties to? And not only that, these were persons that with regularity cheated persons out of their funds, out of their money, so that they took their cut, they took their share, and they're getting wealthy off the backs of Israel. So everyone that's listening to this story of Jesus, they look at the Pharisees around them and they say they've got the insider relationship to God. And they look at the tax collectors and they say they don't. They're the bad guys. But what Jesus does in this story is he just flips it all upside down so that everyone has to think about themselves. I think of this story a little bit like a Flannery O'Connor story. Flannery O'Connor was a southern writer and she wrote in a style or with reference to the grotesque. And what she did inside of southern culture very often is she looked at it and she said, you know, you don't even know who you are. There's racism here, but you think you're right. There's, 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 there's a, the pretense of beauty. But at the very core, you have lost sight of beauty itself. And the way she begins to show that, the way she said she would show that through her literature was this, is that she would, for blind people, draw giant pictures And for people that couldn't hear, she would shout. And her stories are that. They're a shouting match. They're giant abstractions. They're giant. It's hyperbole. And Jesus gives us a little bit of that inside of this very story. Because what he does is he turns their world upside down. He wants people to realize that the only way into a righteousness or a right relationship with God himself, the only way to enter into a place of welcome with God, is through his mercy. It's through his goodness, not your goodness. That's the only way. 
But the tendency of the human heart is to steadily move away from God's goodness toward our own, to inflate our sense of self. Now, the challenge for us, I think, in a story like this is to find ourselves in it. Because we read it and we see the grotesqueness of the Pharisee, and we see the humility of the, of the sinner, but do we see ourselves as sinners? Do we recognize how we show up in the story? Now, for sure, some of us have been around Christianity for some time. I became a Christian oh, 33 years ago or something like that. A long time ago. And one of the things you begin to realize as you've walked with Jesus, as you've been inside the church, as you've heard about grace over and over and over again, is you subtly move away from it as a sense of peace. That instead of finding your identity in the fact that you have a gracious relationship with God because of the sacrifice, because of the love of Jesus, you find yourself constantly propping yourself up by your moral accomplishments, by your religious accomplishments, by your faithful accomplishments. And it's not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves. They're quite beautiful, and God loves our ethics. He loves to move us into change. But the problem with the human heart is it is constantly moving away from God as the source of its peace and constantly trying to discover a happiness that they create for themselves, that you and I create for ourselves, away from God and apart from Him. And sometimes that even shows up in moral perfections. But I think if we just limit our understanding of this story to the way in which we might use our religious lives as a sense of peace for ourselves, we'll miss the point. We won't see all the other ways in which we invest ourselves in this pattern of identity creation that is built on accomplishments and comparisons. Think about it. If you think about the way you lived life this past week, how did that pattern show up? My guess is it showed up a lot more than you're aware of. Case in point, this story has gotten under my skin, and it started to do a little bit of spiritual direction. And I first noticed it yesterday. I'm in the car driving with my family, uh, two of us, two, uh, three of my family, I guess, Connor. Uh, Connor's away at school, way off at college. But Tucker was there, Stacy was there, my wife, and my daughter, Emmeline. And Tucker and I start to have this conversation about something, and he, he wants a haircut. And I said, you know, you've kind of got hair like my brother. It's very wiry. And Tucker's like, I'm not sure I'm finding this to be complimentary. Um, and so we continue, and I said, and then he says this. He says, oh, well, your brother's hair is thinning like yours, Dad. That's not very encouraging to me. And I said, oh, no, I have more hair than my brother. And Stacy peeps out from the back seat, and she says, well, Tuck, why is it? And, you know, whenever she says, why is it? You know, something's coming down, right? A little spiritual direction is happening from the back seat of the car. And she says, why is it that whenever you talk about your brothers, you begin to talk about things that you have that they don't have? Your hair. Why is that? And there I am, driving to the party. And suddenly my mouth is shut. And I think about this story. Jesus doing spiritual direction on my heart. 
helping me to see. Is it trivial? Yes. Is it trivial? Absolutely. Is it incredibly ridiculous that I would prop my identity up against my brothers because I have a few more threads of hair that are in fact leaving? It's ridiculous. But in this broken world, you and I learn ridiculous ways of being human. We prop ourselves up by the way we look or by your dress size, perhaps. By the clothes you wear, the clothes that you could afford to buy. We prop ourselves up by degrees. Where did you go to school? We prop ourselves up by the jobs that we take. What is your profession? We prop ourselves up by all of these kinds of superficial things that in and of themselves, some of them are quite fine. Some of them are quite beautiful. They're wonderful things. But what we do is we're constantly and steadily looking out into the world for some way of feeling at peace. Some way of having a happiness. Some way of having an identity that can't be taken from us. And we anchor ourselves in all the wrong things. Our household has become great fans of Mumford and Sons. I suspect some of you are as well. I see them a few weeks ago. That was wonderful. One of their songs that has sort of been on my mind the last couple of weeks is the song Roll Away Your Stone. It includes these lyrics. Listen to them. You told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul. And I have filled this hole with things unreal. And all the while, my character, it steals. Think about that. Do you hear what they're saying? That the tendency of the human heart is not to move in a direction of something that can fill the hole in your life adequately, fully, wholly but to move to things that are superficial, that are unreal, that can be ripped from your hands in a moment's notice. And as we do that, it steals our character. It erodes our humanity. We become less human, not more human. The song, I think, echoes something that St. Augustine wrote in his little book of confessions many, many years prior. He famously said these words, You awake us to delight in your praise. For you made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. In the absence of praising and delighting in God, you and I will seek over and over again in the most restless ways to delight in other things that can't complete us because they never were intended to. They were intended to live in this life, in this earth, in a way that is absolutely beautiful so that you can think about the life of the earth. You love your relationships. You love getting married if you're married. You love the prospect of relationships. You love having a job that's satisfying. You love having a nice home. There's no reason to not like these things. But the problem is, is that when we begin to delight in them, As the source of our peace, as the source of our identity, you become a person who is less human, not more human. And what that means for you in relationship with other people is you're the Pharisee. So that you live life referencing yourself over and over and over again through the things that you buy, through the food that you eat, through the friends that you have. And you live your life in a steady comparison of other people. 
I have more hair than my brother. How are you doing that in your life? How is God taking just the words that we've read just this moment, that we've just been thinking about ever so briefly, but been singing about it as we entered worship this morning? How is he piercing your soul and helping you to see ways in which you're seeking a peace and an identity away from him, without him, away from his mercy rather than in it? In the absence of praise and delight in God, our hearts restlessly seek peace from other places. Our appearance, our careers, our marriage, our friendship, our parenting, in any otherwise good thing. But what Augustine saw, and as many have seen after him, is that only God is great enough. That only he is good enough. Only he is beautiful enough to fill your soul so that you become a human being that moves into the earth, moves into all the spaces of your lives as one loved of God. And so one now capable of giving love, of pursuing love, of enjoying the earthly life in its fullest way. The tax collector gets that he is a sinner. And he doesn't reference any particular sin, does he? It's interesting. So often we get hung up in the particularity of sin, and we focus on particular places in which we violated things that God says. And it's absolutely appropriate to talk about those things. But beneath any particular act of sin, any particular moral infraction, what you and I need to recognize is that deep beneath it is this deeper belief, or rather, this deeper unbelief, in the mercy and the goodness of God. And if you don't see that, you'll only you'll, you'll live life at the surface and you'll, you'll feel guilty and you'll feel shame and you'll talk about sin up here, but you'll never pierce the depth of it. You'll never recognize that your deepest problem is that you're seeking joy away from God. Through all of these things. The tax collector recognizes that he has filled his void with things unreal. But at the very same moment, the tax collector recognizes the goodness and the beauty of God himself. Because, you see, confession is never enough in and of itself. It's never enough just to simply recognize that we have patterns that are broken and dark and sinful in our lives. If that's all you saw about yourself, you would leave this place this morning and you would feel pretty crummy. You would either be stuck in a place of cynicism that change is never possible for you. Or you'd feel absolutely crushed by the recognition of the darkness that's there. But the tax collector is doing what? He's confessing his sin in the temple. And right there, alongside of praise, alongside of the vision of what God might want, right alongside of that, there's sacrifice. And so he remembers something about the character of God as he recognizes his sinfulness. That he's a God of mercy. And so he beats his chest and he cries out for that mercy. And the people listening to Jesus need to wake up and recognize that the mercy and grace of God isn't an abstraction. And it isn't limited to the activity of the temple now. Because God is in person in our world. Mercy and grace are standing in the front of you. Before you, 
In Jesus Christ, God welcomes the broken. He welcomes the sinner. Jesus says of this man that he went away justified. That is quite simply this. He went away belonging. He went away assured of belonging. He went away recognized that he was now part of God's family, that he'd been brought in. Why? An act of confession in the face of the mercy of Christ. When you read this story, let me ask you this, rather. Why does Jesus tell us this story? You know, you could think, well, Jesus is trying to make us feel a little guilty. He wants us to see the darkness in our soul. That's true. He does want us to see the darkness in our soul. But it's important, it seems to me, to recognize that Jesus Christ isn't drawing a line in the sand here. Not for the Pharisees that would listen. Not for the tax collectors that would listen to him. Not for the just people in between all of those extremes. But Jesus here is who? He is God in person in our world, which means what? That he's humbled himself. That he is the God who has drawn the line. He's shown you where the line is. He's shown you the line of demarcation. But what has he done? He stepped across it himself. He's speaking to you in person. He's doing the inviting to you in person. He's asking that you would come to him, that you would wake up to your sinfulness, but also to his mercy. So that you would hear in his welcome of you that you have a place with God. Last week I was thinking a little bit about the story that shows up in John 4. It's not a story because it's not made up like the tax collector and the Pharisee. But it's an event, it's an episode in the life of Jesus in John 4. It's when Jesus moves, he goes through Samaria and he meets and encounters this woman at the well. And everyone's a little bit shocked that he would talk to the woman at the well. She herself is shocked, frankly, that he would talk to her, a woman, and her, a Samaritan. But there she is, midday, not the opportune moment to be uh, seeking water because it's the heat of the day. But Jesus strikes up a conversation with her as his disciples have gone off to town to get food. And in the midst of that conversation, he asks her for water. And then at some point, he turns it just a little bit, doesn't he? You remember the story, perhaps. He turns the story toward her in a new and fresh way. And he says, you know, if you knew who it was that asks you for water, you'd actually ask me. And I would give you living water that would never stop flowing. And the woman's interest is peaked. Her imagination is beginning to explode because she's never heard of water like this. And who wouldn't want water like this? They didn't have indoor plumbing. How cool would that be? Water that never stopped flowing. And so she enters the dialogue. And Jesus says, hey, go get your husband. And you can almost feel the silence in that moment. What do I say to Jesus? And she confesses, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. In fact, you're living with someone and they're not your husband. And then she begins to talk about worship of all things. You know, you Jews say this. You say worship is over there in Jerusalem. But we say it's here on this mountain. Where is it? And Jesus simply says this. 
A day is coming, and that day is now. When the Father will seek those who worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be on the mountain. It's not going to be at the temple in Jerusalem. It's going to be in spirit and truth. And then she says, I know that Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, I am he. And the woman leaves her bucket, and she begins to go to town. And she goes to town doing what? Confessing her sin. Out in public, come meet this man who told me everything about my life. Not good things. Not beautiful things. But who pointed out the brokenness. Or who better, who made it safe to acknowledge the brokenness. Because of his welcome. Because of his mercy. Jesus tells the stories that he tells so that you and I will wake up to the beauty of his love, to the greatness of his beauty, to, the, to, his, to his, his goodness, to his power that isn't power mobilized against you, but for you, so that you and I would receive the welcome of God and walk away justified, confessing our brokenness in the face of of his goodness. May God give us grace to hear the things that he says. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.